Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Wednesday, October 30th, and thanks as always for tuning in. On today's show, I'll be chatting with a group looking to start a new political party here in the province. The Eco-Socialist Party was launched this week. As they say, they are disappointed in the work that's being done by the NDP and Green parties in their release. It states, many of us worked our whole adult lives to see a Green NDP government take power to usher in an era of eco-socialism in BC, and instead this government is a fraud, a sham, a counterfeit. So I'll be chatting with that group in a short while to get their thoughts on that. Uh, Canfor Corporation, one of the largest remaining wood mill companies in the province, has decided to become a private company in a deal with the Great Pacific Capital, owned by BC billionaire Jim Pattison. I'll be joined by BC Liberal Forestry critic John Rustad to kick off the back half of the show to talk about that deal and what he thinks it represents for the forestry industry here in the province. And to end off things today, I'll be joined by the President and CEO of BC Transit, Aaron Pinkerton, to talk about that transition to electric buses. But to begin today's show, it is time for the usual post-City Council chat with Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian. Mr. Mayor, thanks so much for coming in. It's my pleasure. How you doing? I'm great. Good. So, uh, Council yesterday, uh, it was a pretty quick meeting there for you guys, but uh, still got some work done. Yeah, well, uh, the uh, regular meeting was uh, relatively short, but uh, we had started a committee of the whole meeting at 9 in the morning and then went uh, to a closed committee of the whole meeting with the uh, police department until 1.30, so it was a long day for us, but uh, yeah, that uh, public portion uh, the, yesterday afternoon I think was only an hour and a half. Well, so it just appeared shorter than it actually was for you guys. Um, so the big thing yesterday, the big piece of discussion uh, was the, the downtown plan. Um, so wh why is this plan coming forward right now at this point in time? Why is it important to, you know, bring this forward here in, in uh, what is it, October 2019? Yeah, so th there's a sequence of events. Uh, first of all, we revisited uh, our CAM plan, the official community plan for the whole city, and uh, that was uh, done and adopted in 2017, and then we said that we were going to go neighborhood by neighborhood and review all of the planning documents that we had in place uh, for those places and uh, start to update them, uh, make them uh, relevant in terms of uh, today's pressures on, on uh, municipalities. So the first up was the downtown plan, and it hadn't been looked at in quite some time, and a lot has changed. You know, we've focused now on uh, densification. We're trying to get away from being automobile-centric. We want more people space, uh, and uh, the uh, diversity and zoning is something that we're looking for. So uh, a very extensive uh, effort by uh, Jeff Locke and our long-term planning crew at, at the Development Engineering and Sustainability Office, and lots of consultation uh, with the members uh, of the community, uh, the downtown community, the business community. And uh, as a result, the first draft was out yesterday, and council had a crack at it. Uh, lots of uh, good comments, and they'll take those back, and then they will continue with their consultation. I think today they're meeting with the uh, uh, Central Camelops Business Improvement Area downtown here, and uh, they're going to be hosting another public meeting uh, downtown to get uh, more input on it. And it's 
pretty widely circulated now. I don't think people would be unaware that this was happening. Yeah, 160-page report, so uh, pretty extensive. First draft, like you had mentioned. Um, so a lot of consultation has gone into this first draft, but uh, obviously there's going to be more, uh, more chances for people to have their say in this plan as well moving forward. Uh, so just how important do you think it is for people to make sure that they do get their voice heard on this plan? Because this is a pretty important one, I think, for the city. Yeah, you know, uh, cities that neglect their downtown pay the price. You, you wind up with... Uh, you know, having a, a vacant downtown is like a, almost a hole in the donut, right? And and then you uh, force uh, business and commerce uh, to the suburbs, and and then you have a a real uh, challenge in terms of moving people around. So it is so important that uh, we learn the lessons from from Europe, and we keep the downtown as a people place. And and so some of the catalyst projects that they have uh, outlined in this one is a performing arts center, uh, the taming of Seymour Street, trying to calm traffic down on that uh, avenue, and uh, then the whole notion of a pedestrian plaza so that we have that kind of downtown plaza place where people can interact. And it's about connectedness. It's about uh, getting people in touch with each other and, and having an opportunity to sit and chat and have a coffee and, and have people places. So when you're talking about a, a plaza, I guess, is that somewhere like almost like a, like a square where people, like there would be no cars allowed? Like, do you have any idea what that looks like at this point in time, or is this sort of part of that conversation that needs to be had? Yeah, you know, uh, last summer uh, we tried uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, closure of 4th Avenue, and we uh, created a pedestrian plaza there for a short period of time just to kind of test the concept, and uh, it seemed to work quite well. So now there's uh, a number of properties that have been earmarked uh, for the potential of a pedestrian plaza there and, and a number of businesses that would service the, the needs of that plaza. So uh, that's uh, key to uh, getting a, a core in the downtown area that people want to be in and they want to come down and we want to extend the periods of time where people are downtown. Right now uh, it's often said that the streets sort of roll up at 6 o'clock at night and uh, you know we need to make sure that uh, we're family friendly, pedestrian friendly, eco friendly but also that we create uh, spaces down there that are walkable they are accessible uh, for people and uh, that we get that kind of uh, feeling of livelihood downtown on on a, a longer basis. Now, this sounds like it has the potential to, to really change what the downtown looks like at this point in time. Um, you said this has been worked on for a couple of years to get to this point, to get to this first draft now, and there's going to be some more uh, work done moving forward to get to a second draft as well. But uh, just, you know, what what is the timeline like on this thing? Do you have any idea? And just how significantly is this going to impact what the downtown looks like now and, and into the future? It sounds like it could, uh, you know, really, really, really change what, what people see right now. Yeah, we're closing in on it. You know, hopefully by the end of the year now, we'll have something that uh, council can approve. And, and one of the things that our chief planner said yesterday, it's not just about planning, it's about doing. So you don't make these plans just to put them on the shelf. You make them as a guide to uh, help developers see the vision that we have for downtown and start to uh, uh, make uh, those components come to life. So uh, after we get this one done, uh, we will be moving to the North Shore and we're going to revisit the whole North Shore plan, including the Tronquil Corridor, and get going on that and then we have to 
go up the hill and look at that TRU precinct around there and, and look at that. And then uh, eventually we will go get out to some of the neighborhood plans, you know, revisiting things in Dallas and looking at things in Dufferin and those kinds of uh, uh, suburb, suburban mm -hmm. kinds of uh, plans. Yeah, definitely important to go neighborhood by neighborhood to make sure no one feels neglected because if you look at it as uh, too big, uh, maybe some people will feel like they aren't uh, getting their fair shake. Um, one thing I did want to ask about too was because you had mentioned, uh, you know, when we're looking at a downtown plan here, the there's the projects like the Performing Arts Center that are, uh, you know, being moved ahead, um, significant project. And, you know, one thing that uh, often comes up when you talk about big projects like that is the issue of parking. You know, where am I going to park if I'm going to go to an event? Um, and you're talking here also in your plan off the top about, you know, making downtown less vehicle centric, getting people, you know, out of their vehicles so um, just sort of how I know there is a parking plan that is ongoing yeah. as well so I'm just wondering sort of how these complement each other we're looking at the parking plan and the downtown plan yeah that's a great point Jeff uh, you know the uh, plan is really focused on the the uh, physical structure of downtown but there are a lot of other plans that sort of feed it and uh, the transportation master plan is one the recreation master plan is another uh, the pedestrian plan the cycling plan all these things kind of come together but the the bottom line is that uh, you know people need to realize that there is public transit available and that uh, we have to become less dependent on uh, single vehicle trips into the downtown core and uh, the parking will be an issue. It was an issue when uh, I took office. It'll be an issue when I leave office, I am sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, when we look at uh, some of the strategies that we can take in terms of transportation demand management and uh, uh, park and rides and those kinds of things, that uh, there is hope and uh, hopefully Uber's around and, and maybe we'll be able to have other options. Awesome. Um, well, that's uh, pretty much all I had there on the downtown plan. Anything else that you wanted to add uh, just specifically on that before we kind of, uh, I don't have too much else to ask you about, but anything else specifically on the downtown plan? No, I think we've covered the downtown plan. I, I should just add, though, that uh, for those people that are uh, really in favor of traffic jams, we're throwing a real good one this afternoon uh, downtown if they want to come down and see it. Uh, we're going to be putting the last lift of pavement on the West Victoria project. So if you're coming downtown, expect long delays this afternoon and don't be surprised by it. I'm sure they will be surprised by it. They always are. <laughs> All right, Ken. Well, thanks so much for coming in. As always, I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, I'm sure we'll do it again soon. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Awesome. That was Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian. Coming up, people in B.C. appear to be wanting to uh, maybe change the way the government is run as there are a number of people set to organize a new provincial party, the Eco-Socialist Party here in British Columbia. So I'll be talking more with that group after this. You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Wednesday. A group of environmental and social justice activists have launched a new provincial political party this week here in British Columbia. The group says it has been involved in quiet consultations across B.C. with a broad spectrum of people who are, quote, horrified by the performance of B.C.'s eco-socialist government. Here now to talk about this is member of that party, Stuart Parker. Stuart, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, let's just start by uh, getting your involvement here in this eco-socialist party. What, what, what's your role here in this? Well, uh, I'm, uh, I'm director of organizing. I'm, uh, uh, because I'm located up in Prince George in the center of the province, uh, I've uh, 
taken on um, getting our local organizations up and running is uh, the party builds a uh, provincial platform and the like. So, Stuart, obviously this has been uh, something you guys have been working on for a little while. When did you guys, or when did you specifically as an organizer, sort of get on board with this idea of uh, wanting to start a new political party here in the province of BC. When did that uh, idea sort of begin and, and when did this ball really start rolling for you? Well, um, I don't think I've yet reached the point where I want to start a new political party. It's a lot of work. It's not very pleasant work. I get to work with a lot of great people. But my hope was always that this government would achieve the promise that it represented. I mean, I've been working since uh, the 1990s to see a green NDP coalition governing the province. I just imagined it would be doing the opposite of what it's doing now. So for me, I think for many of us, the day that the NDP announced that it was bringing out $6 billion in subsidies to the global oil industry, starting with a uh, billion dollars for Royal Dutch Shell, the company behind apartheid and the Agoni genocide, to build this giant carbon bomb in Kitimat, that's when those informal conversations had to start. It's really in February that we decided to um, consult people, put together a draft platform document, and uh, begin looking at organizing to run candidates um, in the next general election, whenever that comes. So um, for me, it's, uh, it's been the project of, uh, of less than a year. But in a sense, for most of us, we were, uh, whether we were Greens or New Democrats or whatever we were, this is a thing we thought we were working towards and that we had achieved um, after the 2017 election. So given that, uh, you know, you said you were hoping to see for quite some time this green NDP, uh, you know, partnership in, in, the, provin in the province. Um, you know, we see that happening now, but obviously it hasn't gone the way that uh, you were hoping it would. Um, you know, when, when the election was first um, completed and, you know, we, we knew who was going to be in and who was going to be running the province, uh, how long did it take, I guess, for, for you and, and the group that you represent to, to see or to, to, to feel that, uh, you know, things weren't going as you had hoped? Well, it was, we got, I think our first, I think when um, Jeff Meggs went from running Vision Vancouver to running um, the Premier's office, that was the first of many bad signs. And obviously from there, we went to the Site C decision where the BC Utilities Commission suggested it wouldn't be such a good idea. And according to the text of the agreement between the Greens and the NDP, if that was going to ha if that happened, Site C would be stopped. But instead, um, the NDP claimed that the agreement said something else and that we were going ahead with the Site C dam. But even then, I think many of us didn't abandon the project um, because we'd been working with the people who had taken seats in the legislature for a long time. We felt there was a basis of trust. And so it was really the um, when they decided to create this $6 billion subsidy for LNG, which means fracking 200 new wells in the Peace region every year. And right now, a quarter of Canada's emissions come from practices like fracking. So at that point, we realized that 
it wasn't that this government wasn't moving as quickly as we had hoped to a carbon zero economy. It was realization that the government had floored the gas, that we were actually going to be increasing emissions faster than we did under Gordon Campbell or Christy Clark. Uh, here with Stuart Parker with the BC Eco-Socialist Party. So uh, I guess with all that in mind, with all the, you know, what you've just uh, kind of gone down in terms of your disappointment with what's happened in the BC government to date, um, what is what is your plan to rectify things, I guess? You know, you, I know you probably aren't fully uh, ready to, to start campaigning or anything along those lines just yet, but... Uh, but uh, I think for us... Um what this, um, if we are going to offer an alternative, well, I think one of the reasons that New Democrats and Greens got scared of turning this thing around is that um, there's tremendous fear and depression already in the parts of the province that uh, made their living from forestry and from these other resource sectors that climate change is hammering right now. And so for us, the, the central part of our platform is a Green New Deal that gets people back to work doing good-paying jobs to restore some of the productivity in our province. We've lost so much agricultural and forest land to practices like fracking. We've lost so much to climate change that there needs to be a massive reinvestment, and we need the work and the skills of this province's industrial workers to make that happen. And that's something that's really been squandered. Another thing for us is we really thought that the assets that had been stolen under the B.C. Liberals were something the NDP would try to get back. And so as an example of what I'm talking about, a centerpiece of our platform is seizing those B.C. rail tracks that the government, they were worth $1.1 billion. The government sold them for $99 million at a 91% discount. And two people went to prison and did time for the corruption in that deal. There's absolutely, we should be taking back stolen assets and we should be taking the BC rail line, double tracking that line and getting it into service to move the people and the goods around the province that it should be moving. And we should be electrifying that line. And that's something that's going to be done by workers. It's going to be done by workers in the 250 area code. And I think we've got to put uh, getting people back to work first because the one thing that holds us back from taking on these environmental challenges is the fear that there's going to be even less work. Well, Stuart, unfortunately, we are out of time, but uh, definitely some interesting stuff there. Appreciate you taking the time to come on my show, and uh, we'll definitely be tracking the Eco-Socialist Party here as things move closer to a potential election here in 2021 or, or maybe even sooner. So thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate your time. Thank you. That was Stuart Parker with the BC Eco-Socialist Party. Coming up after the break, I'll be talking about the sale of Canfor to uh, BC billionaire Jim Pattison. We'll have more on that with BC liberal forestry critic John Rustad after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back into the Jeff Andreas Show here on Wednesday, October 30th, the day before Halloween, of course. 
A corporation within B.C. billionaire Jim Pattison's group of companies has made an offer to purchase the remaining 49% of Canfor shares with the aim of taking the lumber producer private. British Columbia's timber giant Canfor Corporation announced on Monday that it agreed to a $16 per share buyout uh, in what could set up a showdown with shareholders who do think that offer might be a bit too low. Canfor's board of directors said the cash offer represents good value given the headwinds in the forestry sector, including the low prices for logs and pulp, and called it a significant premium. However, the offer is below the estimate of Canfor's intrinsic value of $23 per share. I'm joined now by B.C. Liberal forestry critic John Rustad. John, thanks so much for coming on the program with me. My pleasure, Jeff. Perfect. So, um, I mean, what do you make of this deal as it stands right now? I mean, uh, given the fact that the forestry sector is sort of going through this downturn, I would almost think any offer being made to, to take a company private like this uh, almost represents good news. What this offer does do is is show that there is confidence in the long term uh, of our forest sector. And I, I support that perspective. I think uh, there is lots of potential for our forest sector over the long term. The biggest challenge we have right now is the cost structure uh, in British Columbia, and that's one of the reasons why Canfor is uh, taking losses on its on a you know on its monthly basis. But those losses won't last forever. I know circumstances will change, and hopefully, you know, in in this province, uh, we can be in a position uh, in the future where our industry can be more competitive. Yeah. So, uh, given the seven dollars per share less than I guess what the uh, value or perceived value of Canfor is, um, obviously. Obviously, uh, maybe a bit disappointing for the company in the sense that they're hoping to get that $23 per share value, but the fact that they're almost, uh, you know, pushing the fact that this is something that they should take, um, you know, obviously it's sort of like a, a good bad news thing in the sense that it's good news that there are clearly people that are interested in, in still investing in the forestry sector, but bad news in the sense that, uh, you know, it is maybe not uh, quite as valuable as it might, uh, as people are hoping it to be. Well, I can tell you, I, I don't tend to speculate uh, too much on whether the price is, is good or bad. Uh, what I can say is this. We have a shrinking timber supply, uh, and not just in British Columbia, and uh, but we have growing populations. So lumber prices over the long term, I think, are going to be good. Uh, we have to get through this period of time, and we also have to uh, make British Columbia more competitive. Uh, but over the long term, you know, Jimmy Patterson is a long-term investor. I think uh, there is good value in this stock. Um, you know, certainly, uh, from my perspective, if I was a shareholder, I would certainly be wanting more. Um, why wouldn't you want more in mm -hmm. terms of your price tag? Uh, but I do understand why uh, Jimmy Patterson's doing this. But the other piece that I, I find quite curious on this particular deal is uh, with the, uh, the NDP's introduction of Bill 22, is this going to trigger a government review? and to make sure that the public interest is being met. And I haven't heard yet from the minister whether or not um, the sale of uh, Canfor to uh, taking it private will actually trigger that review. Uh, I guess, do you think that that review should happen? Do you have any opinion on sort of what the steps should be in that, in that perspective? Well, I think there's uh, certainly always a concern by whether it's communities or, or um, from the logging sector. Anytime there's an adjustment or a change in a company, um, what does that mean for the future of the mills? What, you know, Canfor has a lot of operations throughout British Columbia. They're uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, tenure holder in the province. And so any change within that company has a potential impact. Um, in terms of its philosophy and direction uh, within British Columbia. And so, you know, there is...
there is a there is some some concern out there. Now I think, quite frankly, British Columbia is a good place to operate, and I don't think there will be any significant changes. But you never know, and so. Uh, Bill 22 is designed uh, for government to take to take that kind of review, and so I'm, I'm be very curious to know whether the minister is planning to do that kind of review. Uh, here with BC Liberal forestry critic John Rustad, and you had talked a little bit there about uh, you know seeing some, some rebounding in terms of the uh, the lumber industry, and I know the uh, Canfor uh, chief executive has said that he is expecting global pulp pricing to start improving in the next quarter, so early in the new year, I'd assume, while uh, you know global lumber prices stabilized by 20. 20. Um, I guess, what what do you view or what are you seeing as a forestry critic here in terms of that value of our pulp and lumber industry? And, and you had mentioned, you know, I think it's going to start to rebound. Um, you know, is that, um, are you, you pretty confident in that being the case here moving forward, that it is going to start to stabilize and improve? When you look at uh, things like the lumber industry and, and the, the, uh, the forest industry in general, you have to take into consideration that we're a price taker, not necessarily a price maker. And that means that we are uh, very vulnerable to what's going on in, in you know, the rest of the world, particularly the United States. Uh, there's lots of people who, are pers- who believe that the, you know, there is a slowdown coming in the United States. Um, to what degree, I don't know. How that will impact prices, I'm not sure either. Uh, but I'm concerned about uh, certainly 2020 uh, in terms of where things could go if there is a bit of a slowdown in the states. Uh, but over the long term, by 2021, 2022, uh, you know, I'm I'm optimistic that we could be uh, seeing some better prices. But that, unfortunately, when you when you have a crisis that we have in the forest sector with the number of people that are being impacted, um, looking out two years or three years is is not. Uh, a lot of comfort for people who are trying to make their payments, you know, this month and have Christmas coming. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, when you're talking about the states and the potential slowdown there, I mean, a lot of people have talked about improving, uh, you know, the ability to trade into the states and have, uh, you know, better access for, for cross-border trading with when it comes to our lumber industry. Um, do you think there's a way to maybe offset, even if there was a downturn a little bit in the United States, that uh, there's some steps that could be taken here to, to ensure that maybe even uh, if, if there is less of a demand, that at least there's still potentially more product going across the border? The Suffolk Lumber Agreement um, is basically at a standstill at the moment. Uh, we're going through a legal phase on Suffolk Lumber, and, and uh, you know it's unfortunate we're not seeing any push or any real initiative uh, by government to uh, to try to bring that to resolution. That basically means we're pushing it out to 2021 at the earliest um, to be able to see a resolution. And even at that, um, you know, there's a long road to get to uh, any kind of negotiated deal. So, you know, I, I don't know if there are access to the states uh, will be eased anytime soon. Uh, you know, we are uh, winning in, in court uh, in at least the last case that we saw, which was helpful, uh, but it hasn't changed the tariffs and the duties at this particular point. And so the biggest thing we can do as a province is drive our cost structure down, make us more competitive so that uh, as we're going through this, our industry can continue to operate even if there is a little bit of a slowdown in the states and we can be more competitive uh, and be in a position to, of strength going into the negotiations as opposed to having to uh, uh, basically take whatever's on the table because our industry's in trouble. Well, I'm sure the, uh, the Jim Pattison group is hoping to see some, some headways made there. And uh, obviously this was big news, seeing the, the hopeful purchase of the remaining 49% of Camfor shares. And uh, we'll see what happens here moving forward. Uh, anything else you want to add here before I let you go, John? 
I would just add that um, I mean, Jimmy Patterson's move uh, to take Can for private, you know, is a is a show of uh, of strength or show of uh, support for our forest sector. And uh, I do think over the long term, the forest sector will see uh, some very significant opportunities and and some growth uh, in this province. We just have to get through this next year or two. And like I say, Patterson's a long term investor, so he's taking advantage of, of where prices are at uh, today. But uh, I, over the long term, uh, you know, I do think uh, we have uh, some good news coming from our forest sector, but we just have to get through this period and we have to make sure that our cost structure is competitive. Well, John, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, look forward to doing it again in the future. My pleasure. Take care. You as well. That was BC Liberal Forestry Critic, John Rustad. Coming up after the break, BC Transit is looking to go fully electric by 2040. I'll be chatting more about that after this. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk at RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Wednesday, October 30th. As we deal with the climate crisis here in this country, there are many steps being taken by various organizations to do their part. One of the popular topics, of course, is electric vehicles, and that does include electric vehicles for transit. What's the plan to get there and what's being done in the meantime? Well, I'm joined in studio now by the president and CEO of BC Transit, Aaron Pinkerton. Aaron, thanks so much for coming in. Hi, how are you? I'm fantastic. How about yourself? Great. Good. Um, so I know when it comes to electric buses, I know there's been some talk uh, here in Kamloops about getting the fleet entirely electric by 2040, I believe the timeline is, and I think that's kind of the same goal province-wide. So uh, maybe just to start with, how is that being perceived in terms of this transition to electric buses? I assume it's something that's widely accepted, and, and how about that timeline? Is that something that many are feeling is achievable? Right. I think it's uh, it's exciting, especially to be here in Kamloops today, and we're looking out the window and seeing uh, an exchange behind us with all compressed natural gas buses. And, you know, BC Transit, we're very proud of the moves we've made to move away from diesel. And that's the number one thing I think that everyone is on everyone's mind, right? Is, yes, electric. That's our absolute long-term plan. Go to electric, get there by 2040, start buying all electric by 2028. But what do we do between now and then? So compressed natural gas is what we're going to call our bridging or our temporary solution to get us to the plan place where we can start to buy electric. Uh, you know, it all depends on the viability of the market. We've got to wait for the electric bus market to be ready for us. We have to be ready for the electric bus market. There's a lot for us to do. And we're excited about the, the fact that we're never buying a heavy-duty diesel bus again. So when we're talking that, uh, you know, 2028, when uh, you can really start buying all electric buses, why why is it taking that long? I mean, you kind of touched on it there saying right. the market needs to be ready on, on both sides. Right. But I guess what, what needs to be done between now and then? What what do we have to do to get ready? Yeah, and so lots of lots of things we could go through. I think uh, one thing to remember is that our buses are a long-term investment. And so we've looked at the various types of buses we have. We have double-deckers, we have 40-footers, we have light duties, we have handy dart vehicles. And so we have to look at when are we doing a big replacement of those buses. So one of the things is, is like whatever we buy right now is going to last 13 years. So part of it is not just the market. Part of it is our ability to replace our fleet when we're ready to. We're not going to throw out a bus that's brand new. Um, and then some of the other things are uh, the infrastructure, the back-end infrastructure for how are you plugging in these buses overnight? 
do you have the power? Does are we working very closely with BC Hydro to do site assessments to say what is going to be the power load overnight, and are we going to have the ability to plug them in? Not to mention many many operational things, but we're we're happy and excited to work on all those details. Um, so this is a pretty would you call it an ambitious plan, or, or is I mean it seems like 2040 is sort of a nice timeline. You got 20 years, so it's not like a rushed plan. This feels like something that's been pretty well uh, set out, and you have sort of good steps to take in order to achieve that goal. I would say everything when it comes to switching an entire 1,200 bus provincial fleet from a traditional gas and dieseline to electric, that's ambitious. But I'm confident that we can get there, and I think we have a couple things underway that are going to allow us to manage the uh, procurement and timing of how we do that. And what I mean by that is, so for example, here in Kamloops, we have 49 compressed natural gas vehicles. We have the ability, and we're working closely with Fortis, to look at sec securing renewable natural gas which will reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 85%. So there's options that we have in terms of the timing for how long it takes to get there. You know, if electric doesn't become uh, viable as soon or as quick as we want it, maybe we can start to look at some renewable natural gases as, again, just temporary steps in order to make sure we get to the vision of achieving a low-carbon greenhouse gas emission-free fleet. So, um, in terms of electric bus market at this point, then, um, what is the market looking like? I mean, are, mm -hmm. we, are we, is there a lot of companies that are offering fully electric bus vehicles at this point in time, or what, what is the marketplace looking like right now? Yes and no. So it absolutely depends on the, the type of the bus, like I mentioned earlier. So heavy duties, which are the standard city transit bus that most people would, would recognize with, the market we believe is quite strong for that. We're going to go out and we're going to try to buy 10 of them for Victoria for 2021. That's going to tell us whether or not we, we have those assumptions right. Um, for example, a double-decker, not as many products out there on the market just to even buy a diesel double-decker. Uh, but we've sent this message. The other thing about coming out and giving your plans is we've sent the message to the industry to say you better work with us to get into a, a type of bus situation that we're going to buy from you and, and that's not in a threatening way it's in a work with us and an advocacy role in terms of this is our plan and how can we work with you to get it done okay um, so when you're looking at those those uh, buses for Victoria in 2021 I mean there's a lot of people who probably look at the electric vehicle market and say you know it's not really viable or what happens when it gets too cold how far can these things travel I mean is that maybe a testing ground or are you guys really confident in how things work right. and that's just sort of the the beginning of the rollout or sort of what what is, what is that? Uh... Yeah, I mean, we, we trialed uh, an, an electric bus in 2018. We put it into revenue service, and we've, we were actually very surprised and encouraged by the results we got. We were able to run the bus for almost 80% of all the service that we put out in the day. Um, it got the charge that we needed. Granted, it wasn't in a colder weather situation, but we did have the air conditioning pumped. And so, yeah, the drain on the battery and how long you put the bus out, those are things that we have to figure out. The other thing that I think about is how maybe, not maybe, but the entire transit industry needs to look at how do you put in a new technology and not run your business the same? So what we're used to in the transit world is you fill up your bus with diesel gas and it lasts for about two days and then you refill it every second day. That's not going to be the way you run an electric bus, nor would it if you bought an electric car mm -hmm. for your house. So what are we going to do to actually make sure we can get service on the road, but figure out how to make the technology work for us and not wait for the technology to work perfectly the way we're used to running our business. Okay. Um, I'm here with the uh, president and CEO of BC Transit, Aaron Pinkerton. Now, um, when 
talking about the compressed natural gas buses as well and sort of that transitional period, um, so you said we're no longer buying diesel buses. Uh, how many diesel buses are on the road? Do you have any idea? And, and how long is it going to take to get them fully off the road at this right. point? So we have 1,200 buses provincially, and right now we have just converted in the last, say, four or five years, we have about 130 compressed natural gas buses. So you can see it's a long way to go. Um, good or bad is that we have to replace almost half of our fleet in the next five years. So there's a heavy push. We're going to be converting a Central Fraser Valley. That entire system is going to compress natural gas next year. And we're bringing in a significant portion of buses into the Victoria region. And this has all been pretty well uh, budgeted out. I assume there's nothing that uh, you foresee as potential hiccups at this point, or is there anything that you look at where you're like, well, you know, we have planned for it, but there's a possibility that maybe it doesn't come in quite as planned? Right. Compress, uh, a couple things. So compressed natural gas buses are more expensive than diesel. We've been fortunate to secure funding from the federal government as well as the province. And then Fortis BC actually provides an offset on the incremental cost. So we can basically get the bus to be comparable to the cost of a diesel. And then we've now had experience, say, here in Kamloops, in Nanaimo and Whistler and building the actual fueling infrastructure for converting liquid natural gas through a converter into compressed natural gas. So it's, it's uh, you know, it's interesting we're here talking about transit, we're not talking about the service, but that's what's so interesting about this industry is that the techno technological changes that are occurring on the back end side of our business are larger than we've ever experienced. Well, that's uh, definitely interesting. Um, when looking at, uh, I guess, how this compares to other places, I mean, uh, is BC sort of ahead of the game right now when it comes to maybe just looking at here in Canada? It sounds like this might be something that, um, you know, we're doing that maybe other provinces aren't, or at least they're looking at, but maybe aren't as far along in their plans to, to make this transition. Mm -hmm. a, couple, a couple things on that I'd point out is um, every transit agency across North America has made commitments to switch their fleets to low emission. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people are dabbling in the onesies and twosies and the pilots, just like we are. Uh, I would suggest as well that it's each province has to look at where their fueling source comes from. So in British Columbia, we have clean hydroelectric energy. And that makes our transition to electric relatively easy. There's capacity across the entire province. Uh, when you're going back east, some of the provinces are looking at, well, where, where do we get the energy from? And what is the actual life cycle? What's the energy usage to get to what you're choosing? So down in California, a lot of companies are looking at hydrogen electric. Uh, is that is what California is focusing on in terms of their plans. Uh, and then across the water in TransLink, TransLink is definitely looking at going to electric and we're working in partnership with them to share the results of all of our work together. Awesome. Um, so I guess, are you guys paying close attention to what other people are doing then just to make sure that, uh, you know, things are being done as best practice? Yes, absolutely. I mean, when you go out to tender and say to the world you want to buy a hundred new buses, yeah. you, you would hope that what you get back is an industry standard versus a one-off, mm -hmm. right? None, think about anything you buy in your personal life. You, you would rather buy something that's tried, tested, and true. For sure. Uh, I think that's pretty much it. Do you have any idea when we'll see the first uh, fully electric bus here in Kamloops? Not not sure yet. Uh, the benefit of Kamloops is I know that the city and the mayor and council are working hard on future expansion plans. So the next three years are going to look at more hours and more buses. And the, the, I guess the question is, once we can confirm that the next buses we buy are working and we're happy with them, could the next expansion bus in Kamloops be electric? Hopefully. We'll find out. Aaron, <laughs> thanks so much for coming Thank in. I really so appreciate much. it. That was uh, President and CEO of BC Transit, Aaron Pinkerton.
Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests one more time for joining me. And, of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. Taking a quick look into tomorrow's show, it's going to be a bit of a spooktacular one with a focus on Halloween because, of course, tomorrow is All Hallows' Eve. I'll be joined by Eve Lazarus. She's a uh, true crime author who lives here in B.C., so I'll be chatting with her about some uh, dark stories, if you will, that have happened here in the province. Uh, I'm sure many of you have carved out some jack-o'-lanterns to put on your porch to let kids know that you're open for business and uh, of course that's great I love carving pumpkins and they do look awesome but what do you do with them after Halloween? Well you can't just leave them out to rot or let kids steal them and smash them so the city does have a plan to help you out and uh, you know find a way to put them to good use so I'll talk about that as well and I'll also be digging into some stats just to see how much Canadians enjoy the annual costume and candy filled holiday so be sure to tune in to tomorrow's show. Of course if you enjoy the show and missed an episode or two you can always find everything podcasted online. You can listen on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, among other places, and individual segments are always posted on our website at radionl.com slash podcasts, so there is no excuse not to tune in. All right, well, one more time, thanks for listening, and remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know that I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow, Thursday, Halloween, starting at 9.